Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. Amen. Well, Matt just preached my message, so now... (laughs) I promise you these are the notes that I had last week, the message I was going to preach last week, and it starts with opening your Bibles to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, verse 6, and we're going to read through 11. So, um, so yeah. Uh, how many guys here, very first time ever coming to Outreach Church? Just raise your hand where we can see it real quick if it's your first time coming here. Anybody? No? We're, oh, oh, we do have some people. Just keep them up real quick. There's something we want to give you. Just keep your hand up real fast. Yeah. Yeah, where we can see it. And if you would fill this card out for us, and then on your way out, there's boxes by every exit. If you could just drop that in there, we would just like to get a hold of you during the week if you want us to. If you put your email there, we're going to send you an email just to make sure if there's anything that we as a family can be doing for you, that we, we are aware of it and we can do that. Because we believe that being part of a, of a local church family is an amazing thing. And we believe that there's benefits that come with it. And one of those is, is that everybody shares each other's burdens and everybody shares each other's needs. And so if there's something going on that we can help with, we'd love to know and, and be able to help you guys. Um, and we're thankful for you. Um, it's amazing that that principle of, of sowing and reaping, and, and but beyond that is being aware that everything that comes into my hand, there's an opportunity that maybe that's a seed. You know, it, it's, it's one thing to understand that God wants to bless me and to, to feel blessed by the things that come into my hand. It's a whole other thing to live in a way where everything that comes into my hand, I look at it and realize that there's a potential that maybe that's seed rather than just something I'm supposed to eat. And that Matt would be with his ears open to hear God say, go get 20 more dollars. And it seems like such a simple thing, right? It's like, go get $20 more and give $20 to each of the people working there. But you have no idea what God is able to do when He breathes on just the smallest act of obedience. Like, everything, you read through the Word, and it's like, you know, we, we know that concept of be, He who's faithful with little will be made ruler over much. And so, so sometimes we tend to look at things as little, but I believe the best way to be faithful with little is don't see it as little see everything as much because the problem is is if you start seeing it as little you'll do it for a time for a reason to get somewhere you'll see it as a stepping stone or you'll see it as just something you're doing so that you can get to whatever's next and there's no way that you will put your heart into something the way you will if you see this as the most important thing ever in your life there's just no way there's no way you'll treat a stepping stone the way you would treat the throne if David's in the field watching sheep so that he can get to the throne, there's no way he goes after the lion and the bear. He doesn't risk his own life because, hey, this is just something that I'm doing so that I can get to what's next. But actually believing that this is the most important thing and this is what I'm called to causes him to put his life on the line and put his life into God's hand and go after the lion and the bear when they take a sheep because he doesn't see it as a little thing. And, and, and so I just, I don't know, someone I think maybe needs to hear that, that, that the thing that you're doing right now is not little in God's eyes. And if you just be faithful, what He can do and He breathes on that is so much more amazing than anything that you could imagine. 
It's like, what was the little thing that morning? Was it me giving Matt $40? Was it Matt wanting to give a tip to people that work there? Or was it the, the, the woman looking at him and saying, what must I do to be saved? The funny thing is, is our conversation that morning was all about the fact that a lot of times we sow seed and we have no idea of the increase that comes. We talked about the fact that like, if a farmer was to sow seed and wake up in the morning and judge whether or not he, the sowing of the seed worked by what he saw in the morning, he would probably dig up the seed before it had a chance to put down roots and try over again. Sometimes you don't see the fruit and sometimes you don't see the result of the seed that you're sowing immediately. It just means that you need to trust God. A farmer has to trust that the seed is in the ground and that the things that it, it needs to happen are being given to it and that what he can't see underground will turn into something that he can see above ground if he would just be faithful to wait and if he's done everything the way he knows to do it and so we were talking about that that morning I said yeah it's funny because a lot of times people don't look at you and say what must I do to be saved it'd be awesome if they did but a lot of times you don't get people that look at you and say what must I do to be saved and then Matt gives a $20 tip and the girl says what must I do to be born again I think God has a sense of humor it's almost like he hears our conversations So if you're open to 2 Corinthians, Matt read it, so um, <clears throat> maybe it doesn't need a pastorly read. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. And I'm going to read through it because there's some things that I want to I key in on. Um, it says, Now I say this, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, He scattered abroad, He gave to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Now He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's alive, God, that it's not just that we read it one time and we've experienced it in its fullness, God, that we are continually experiencing your fullness as we read your word, as we learn about who you are, God, as we learn about who you've called us to be and who we've become in Christ. I just ask today, Holy Spirit, that the words that come from my mouth would be straight from your heart. Father, that our ears would be open to hear and our minds would be able to understand, our hearts to receive, that we would be the good soil. God, that our lives would produce fruit, that a world that is dying and does not know you would taste the fruit of our lives and see that you're good. I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, I'm probably going to need a glass of water. I sprayed some of my wife's thieves oil in my mouth, and now it's kind of like rubbing on the back of my throat, making it a little bit raw and scratchy. Anybody else use thieves oil ever? Look at you guys. Yeah, Anna Ivy's like, um, hmm. Someone told me one time, they were like, dude, I feel like Anna Ivy is the Apostle Paul of essential oils. She like evangelizes everybody to them. You know, the truth of the matter is, though, is if you love something and you believe in it, you'll tell other people about it. People won't have to tell you to evangelize. It won't be something that you go and do. It'll be something that you are. It's who you've become. 
If you're having to do evangelism, then there may be a problem where we're not really actually seeing him and the love of God is not overflowing. And and listen, it's not like that we don't ever go through seasons of our lives where it's like, man, you ever go through a time where you just feel like, I don't feel anything in this moment. Like, I love to feel God. You know, feelings are amazing, but they make a really bad barometer of truth. I can't live by what I feel, especially if what I feel confronts what he said. So if he said he'll never leave me or forsake me, but I feel like he's gone, then I have to tell my feelings that they're not true and actually live by the word, which is the truth. For a man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of the Father. So if he spoke something that opposes what I'm feeling, then I'm going to trust and take him at his word rather than take my feelings and believe that they're true and make everything serve them. And so... Um, but you, sometimes you go through those seasons, and you know what the truth of the matter is? is I feel like everybody probably goes through those seasons, and I think they're on purpose. I think sometimes the feeling of God being there isn't as strong as it is sometimes, because I think oftentimes God's teaching us that there's a, a thing to faithfulness even when I don't feel it. That, that He's so much bigger than my feelings, that I can go through a season where I don't feel Him the way that I do, but I choose to believe and I put faith, because without faith it's impossible to please God. And I think every now and then He kind of just withdraws Himself from our feelings and from our senses a little bit, just to see if we're living by our feelings or if we're actually living by faith in what He said and we believe Him above what we feel. And we prove ourselves steadfast. Listen, just as much as God is proving Himself faithful to you, you're proving yourself faithful to the Father. There's something to that, that he entrusts those who are faithful and have proven themselves. When he called Aaron and Miriam out of the tent, remember they were speaking about Moses and they were bad-mouthing him saying, doesn't God speak to us too? Who is he to think that he should be the one to lead? We're prophets and God spoke to us and they were kind of bad-mouthing Moses and then the cloud descends down on the tent. And one of the biggest oh-no moments that I can imagine reading the Word happens because the voice of God speaks from the cloud and says, Aaron, Miriam, and Moses, come out. Now you know that you've just been talking about Moses if you're Aaron and Miriam, and now you hear the voice of God calling you out of the meeting and separating you from everybody. The fact they didn't drop dead amazes me. The fact they didn't faint amazes me. And then they step outside, he says, okay, Aaron and Miriam, you step forward. You realize that in stepping forward, they were stepping away from, and I believe it was God showing them, what you're doing is causing you to step away from the authority that I've placed. And you stepping forward and actually creating a physical space is a reminder that you're creating a space between the person I've put in authority in yourselves by the words that you've spoken. And he is no longer your covering because of what you're saying. And when you step forward, not only has it happened in the spirit, but it's happening in the physical and I'm causing you to step forward. And once they step forward, something happened to Miriam. And God spoke to them and he said this, and, and I, I, I say it so much, I probably have it pretty close to memorize, but it's in, it's in the book of Numbers. It says, they were just saying, doesn't God speak to us? Aren't we prophets and prophetesses and all this stuff? And he says, if there be a prophet or prophetess among you, I'll speak to them dimly, darkly, as in dreams or visions, but not so with my servant Moses, for he is faithful in all of Israel, and with him I speak face to face, and he even beholds my form. How then did you dare to speak against my prophet Moses? And that word faithful there means trustworthy, proven, and loyal. 
And God's saying, listen to me. There may be people that I speak to through dreams and visions and stuff like that. I may give somebody a dream and a vision who hasn't proven themselves the way that Moses has. But Moses has proven himself over time. He's built a relationship with me where he trusts me and I trust him. And I entrust him with more of myself than I entrust any of you with. How dare you speak against the one who has that relationship with me? I want to be that. Not for him to say that to you guys. But that when he says about me, he says, my servant Roy, he is faithful in all my house. Like I want him to say, I've built a relationship with Roy and I trust him and he trusts me and I give myself to him fully. I speak to him mouth to mouth. He even beholds my form. Because you can have that. Because that's not just for Old Testament stories that impress us about who God was. It's because it's trying to show us who God is. So that the same God yesterday that said that about Moses can be the God today that says it about me and about you. That you're building that relationship. That there's something to that little voice saying, get another $20. And rather than rationalizing it and saying, well, I've already got 40 I, I have my card. If I need to spend more than $40, I can just use my card. <clears throat> Rather than rationalizing it away, actually saying, okay, God, I'll go get another $20. And then when God says, I know that you've just been called to to spend $600, but I want you to give 10% more than that away to people on top of that. I know money's tight, but this is what I want you to do. To be able to say, okay. The fact that he's actually asking you to do something means that he believes that you're capable of doing it and that he believes that you will. And the way that we build trust with Him is by saying yes every single time. That's what being faithful in the little is about. It's just saying yes even when it seems insignificant so that you are in position to say yes when it seems significant and important. The problem is so many of us don't get to the important, significant, big things that we would say yes to because we won't say yes to the little things. Because everybody would say yes to the big thing. Who wouldn't want someone to say, what must I do to be born again? But how many people will say yes to the little thing that puts you in the position to say yes to the big thing? I don't want to get to the end of my life and see that there was a bunch of big things that I was supposed to say yes to, but I was so busy saying no to little things, I never got to the big things. I don't want to spend my life to get to the end of my life and realize that because I wasn't, was unwilling to submit myself to authority on earth, I couldn't be submitted to authority in heaven. I don't want to get to the end of my life and see that God wanted to entrust me with a bunch of sheep of my own, but I wouldn't be faithful and trustworthy to watch over someone else's sheep when He called me to. If you look through the Bible, there's so many passages about people being called by God, and while they're called by God, they're actually being faithful to serve another man. I think it's because if we can't submit ourselves to earthly authority, He doesn't trust us to submit to heavenly authority. And that's where we prove ourselves. And that's where your name gets added into that. Consider my servant, Jim. He's faithful in all my house. He's proven. He's trustworthy. He's loyal. You guys open to 2 Corinthians 9.6? Okay, I read through I'm going to start at the end, and then I want to work backwards. Because there's something in here that he says that I think sometimes gets missed, especially when we read it in the English, um, in the English language. In, in, um, in verse 11, he says, You'll be enriched in everything for all liberality. That sometimes gets... Translated as generosity, but that's a, that's a kind of one-dimensional translation, and it, it doesn't capture the fullness of that word there. 
says, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. That word there that they use for liberality actually means this. Sincerity without self-seeking, generosity, and simplicity. Sincerity without self-seeking, generosity, and simplicity. So the way to live sincerely without self-seeking and simply and generously is the things that precede this. He said, because this is what is produced in us. So now I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And he says, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Then you will be enriched in everything for all simplicity without self-seeking generosity. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for eating. There's a difference between what we get in our lives that's bread for eating and seed for sowing. And there's a qualification on one and there's not a qualification on the other. He says, he who supplies bread for eating. In other words, everybody that needs to eat gets bread. This is the prayer that Jesus you know, taught us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. This is the promise we find in, in, in Proverbs and stuff over and over again. Never have I seen the righteous starving, nor his offspring begging for bread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. So there's this promise that everybody who needs to eat, who needs to eat? Every single person. There's no qualification on that. Every single believer who's in Christ gets what they need to sustain them for the day. Gets what they need to sustain them in the thing that He's called them to. Gets what they need to sustain them through the day. There's no qualification on that. If you can eat, God will make sure that you have bread to eat. But there is a qualification on seed. And He says, now He who gives bread for eating and seed for sowing... Seed to the sower. It's only those who are faithful to sow that he entrusts with seed. Everybody gets enough for them. Only people who are faithful to give away what he gives them to give away are promised to receive more so that they have everything that they need to live simply without being self-seeking and generously. Why? Because if you will give away what he gives you and entrust him, he looks down, sees faith, and he can't help himself but to continue to supply you if you're faithful to continue to sow. Think about the disciples, right? They gather together. There's a bunch of people that are hungry. And he says, you feed them. And the disciples are still at a place in their life where they don't understand that if Jesus is telling them to do something, he already has the way figured out. And he's not interested in them trying to figure out their own way to do it. And they say, well, where will we go to buy all of this food? The closest town is a far way off. And the people are hungry now. They're basically saying, like, we, we would feed them if we knew where there was a place for us to go and buy food. And Jesus says, well, what do you have? Just a simple question. I think a lot of times in our lives, he tells us to do something, and our response is always to tell him why we can't. And to point out what we don't have. If we're not careful, and we don't understand his character and his nature, and the lesson that he taught us in the last time that he provided doesn't carry through, and it just becomes a cool story we tell, but it doesn't change the way that we think, which is what repentance means, to change the way you think, then the next time we come into a problem, we'll think of it with the same mindset we had the time before. And so they, when he tells them, you feed them, the first thing the disciples think about, the very first thing, is why they can't. 
And this is why I think Jesus was constantly telling them, oh, you of little faith, how long must I be with you? How long must I suffer with you? Why is it that your faith is so small? He constantly was questioning their faith because he's saying, listen, if you guys had any bit of faith in me, you wouldn't respond with the reason you can't. You would ask me how you can. I want that to be our response as a people. Like when God calls us to something, rather than tell him why we can't, ask him how we can. Okay, God, if you're calling us to this, then I understand that this is your desire. I know that you're going to make a way. What does that way look like? Not tell them, well, we can't because the closest town is so far away and the people are hungry now. By the time we get there, what they're saying basically is this. By the time we get there and get food and get back here to feed them, they could have already made it there to get food themselves. It's going to take twice as long if we feed them than it would if they would just feed themselves and they're hungry now. As if Jesus doesn't know all these things. Anytime we find ourselves arguing with him, especially when it comes to the area of provision or something he's called us to do, we're the ones who are missing something. I promise you, he isn't sitting there going, oh, well, I didn't, I didn't think of that. You guys are right. You obviously know this area a lot better than I do. What was I thinking? Send them home. And he says to them, well, what do you have? Because you guys, all you can see is what you don't. All you can see is how far away it is. All you can see is the need right now. You can't even see the fact that maybe I want to do something with what you do have. You don't have to wait until you get everything, all your ducks in a row to be able to be used by God. You just have to be willing to use the ducks that you already have. I promise you, your ducks don't have to be in a row. They don't have to be herded neatly. You just have to have a duck (laughs) and submit it to him. Seriously, a lot of us are waiting. Like, like in life, I feel like well, so many times we miss out on things because we're waiting until that day, and that day never really comes. It's like, what's the day that you're ready to be the perfect husband and provider and, and be the priest of a home as a young man and get married? Never. That's perfect, because if you're not capable of your own, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, and in your weakness, He's made strong. When you understand that, then you're in the perfect position to actually be the man He's called you to be, because you don't think you have it all figured out. When are you ready to be a parent and tell a kid everything they need to know? I used to think I was, my dad was a genius, and there's no way I was going to be able to ever replace him. He is a very smart man, but I understood one thing. He didn't have to know everything, he just had to know more than me. And he could fill in the blanks when he didn't. And I never knew. We didn't have Google back then. Imagine if you had Google now. Like nowadays, you've got to be careful what you say to your kids. Because they can Google it like that and fact check you. No, Dad, the moon is not actually made of cheese. Right back in the day, you were just like, it's made of cheese. So the disciples, he says to them, well, what do you have? And it would be really wise of us when we hear God speak something to us to immediately think, what do I have? I want you to bless them. You, 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 we, sometimes we hear about like a family that needs help and we think there's just this overwhelming thing that they need. They need this and they need that. And we start tallying up in our heads and we start thinking about how much it's going to cost to actually help them. And we fail to understand that maybe we can't do everything, but we can do something. And so rather than looking around and saying, well, God, it's going to take X amount of dollars and I only have this, why wouldn't we look at it and say, okay, God, if you're calling me to help them, then that must mean that you think I have something that's capable of helping them. 
If, someone, if, you're, if God puts somebody in your life and they have all these problems and these issues and you talk to them and you just start feeling overwhelmed because it's like, man, they're struggling with this and they're struggling with that and they're struggling with that and they're questioning this and they don't know about that. Rather than getting overwhelmed and thinking you have to have the answer for everything, which you do, it's Jesus, but the specific answer in each case, you can just find the thing that you actually do have the answer for and be faithful to steward that and pour that into them and watch God place other people that can supply the rest of it into their lives. Because what you could have is you could have five people in their lives that all have a peace. And all five people are unwilling to do anything because they can't do everything. And you have five people that if they would just do what they're called to do could be a complete representation of the Father to that person. But because one person doesn't think they can do it and this person doesn't, you have five people standing around saying, I wish there was something we could do. And God's looking at them going, well, what do you have? I wish I had everything they needed. Well, what do you have? I feel like that would be his answer to us so many times is, well, what do you have? So they say to him, well, we have a, we have a, a, a boy's lunch, a small boy's lunch. There's a few loaves and a few fish. He says, bring them to me. That's enough. Now, the disciples were starving too. It says that in one of the cases, in one of the instances that they were uh, tired, they needed to rest, they needed to eat, and then Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, and so right when they think they're going to get away, they're going to spend time, they're going to have some downtime, they immediately are thrust back into another ministry thing, and it's been even longer now since they've slept and since they've ate. They're probably very hungry, I know that they're tired. And they have this one boy's lunch. And what they could have done with that lunch is they could have divided that up and the disciples themselves could have eaten a little bit each and it would have been enough to sustain them for another moment, for another hour, for another day, whatever the case was, however much food there was. But it wouldn't have been enough for everybody there. And they could have just ate that. And a lot of times things come into our lives and because we have a poverty mentality for not care for an orphan mentality, we would just devour everything that comes into our lives without ever considering that maybe this thing that's in my hand is not just for me to consume, but maybe there's something in there that God wants to use for other people. And the more we trust Him and the more we understand that He's not lacking. There's never been a seed problem in heaven. There's only been a sower problem on earth. Ever. Years and years and years ago, Jesus looked down and he said, look, the harvest is white. The harvest is great. It's the laborers that are few. The problem's never been with this. It's always been with this. The problem's never been there's a lack of seed in heaven and God's having to trickle it out. The problem has always been there's been a lack of faithful sowers on earth that God can give seed to abundantly. There is no lack on his end. And so they say, well, we have this boy's lunch and to their credit, they hadn't already devoured it. And he says, okay, bring it to me. He blesses it. And then it says, and as they went, it was multiplied. As they brought the food out. First he said, I want you to organize the people into groups. Okay? Tell them to sit down in groups of 50. We're going to feed them. Okay, Here's where you have to trust that you've heard the voice of God when He's calling you to do something because I promise you the people being sat in the groups of 50 that were already starving probably weren't real stoked about being herded up into groups and being forced to sit on the ground by these people when all they want to do is get out of there and go get something to eat. To their credit, they all stayed. 
There must have been something about the life of Jesus that caused them to say, even though it doesn't make sense, and even though I'd rather go get something to eat, if he's saying that we should do this, maybe we should do it. The thing about it was, is Jesus wasn't saying it. It was the people Jesus had working with him that he'd entrusted with the authority to do it that said it. Be real careful if you have to hear everything straight from God. Because sometimes God speaks through people. And sometimes He's not going to speak to you until you've done the thing He sent a person to tell you to do. It's just the truth. You can find it in the Word. Jesus Himself didn't stand on a rock and say, everybody get in groups of 50. Jesus said, you go tell the crowds to gather into groups of 50. And when the crowd was seated... See, sometimes we think like, like if God's involved, it should be chaotic. And I, and, and I agree that there is a side of God, sometimes that's a little bit, you know, unorganized and a little bit messy. But the first thing God does is look down at the earth and sees chaos and decides, I'm going to bring order to chaos. It's the first revelation of the heart of the Father that's in the Word, is that He looks out and darkness and chaos covers the earth. And God says, let there be light. I see what's on the earth. I'm going to bring the opposite. And he puts man on the earth and he creates this garden. And then he says, now you go and subdue the earth and have dominion over it and bring everything into the order that I started here in the garden. I want that to spread to the rest of the earth. Jesus is much the same as his father. Imagine that. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. And there's chaos, and there's a big crowd, and it's unorganized, and everybody's restless. And so he says, here, gather them into groups and settle everybody down. And then it says, and they came, and he was continually giving them food, and as they took it, it multiplied. So they're walking towards these people. And there's this moment where it's like, okay, we've done what you said to do. Now you have to do something. God, we've done everything you've asked us to do. We've organized the people. We've given you the food that we have. Now we're counting on you. We ought to find times in our lives where we're in that place where we say to ourselves, God, we've done everything that you've called us to do. We've submitted all that we have to you. And now, Father, we're we're asking you that you have to breathe on this. You have to bless this because in and of ourselves, we can't do it. I don't want to live just this, like life where everything makes complete sense and I never find myself in a position where if God doesn't come through, I look like a fool. Every now and then it's good to be so far out there in faith that if He doesn't come through, you look like a fool. Just make sure that it's faith and not your desire that's putting you out there. Otherwise, you could look foolish real quick. And He's not to blame. And so, they take the food... They bring it and they feed the people. They surrender what they have and they consider it seed rather than consider it food. It's really important in life that we know what's the difference between food and between seed. And they understand this surrendered to Him is far better than this surrendered to me. This yielded to Him can produce a way greater harvest than this yielded to me. His desire is greater than my desire. And there's a trust there that says, and I got a sneaky feeling that if I'm faithful to do what He's called me to do, it's not going to be harmful to me. He's not going to bless you at my expense. He blesses you at His expense. I'm the person that actually gets to be the one the blessing flows through. But it's not at my expense, it's at His. And if He blesses you at His expense, 
through me, then that means it's his obligation to refill and reproduce what I gave in my life in abundance because his word says that he will. So check this out. So now they've been faithful to do all those things. And they go and they give the food out. And then what happens? Everybody eats. Everybody's full. He gives bread for eating, food for eating, right? Everybody eats and everybody's full. Who goes and collects the scraps and has a surplus that is enough to last them all at least two more weeks from that day forward? The sowers. Because he gives bread to those who will eat, but he gives seed to those who will sow. And it says, and when they were done, they went and collected baskets, and there was enough for all of them to have a basket. In fact, there was like seven large baskets one time, there was five large baskets another time. You know, the crazy thing about it is, is there was more leftover when they started with less food than there was when they started with more food. It's God's way of saying, listen, what you start with doesn't matter. It's me breathing on it that matters. It's what you do with what you start with that matters. Who walked away from that the most blessed? The disciples. Why? Because they were the ones who were in the position to sow. How did they get to be in the position of sowing? They spent time with him and had intimacy with him and were with him actually doing the things that he required them to do and asked of them to do. There was a cost to being a disciple, but there was also a reward. If we're not careful, we'll preach the cost of discipleship over and over again to where people see it, but they're afraid of it because we don't preach the reward of it. The truth is, is there was a great reward in them being disciples but there was also great cost. See, everybody that came to Jesus that day, every single person that came to Jesus got fed. But there was one group of people who got more than just fed, who got more than they could take, who got more than they could actually do with, and had an excess and an abundance. And this is what Paul's talking about when he writes this. He says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. What did he do? He took what they started with and he multiplied it significantly to where it fed thousands and thousands of people, but there was also enough left over to feed them for a long time so that they walked away from it with more than they started with, even though they started with nothing hardly. If we trust Him. See, they trusted Jesus at this point enough that when He said, here's what I want you to do, they said, okay. The trust wasn't there yet that when He said, you feed them, they didn't turn to Him and say, okay, so what are we, how are we going to feed them? They started telling Him why they couldn't. But there was a day coming where He would tell Peter, feed my sheep. And Peter wouldn't say, I can't feed your sheep. There's too many of them. How will I? Because Peter spent enough time with Jesus to know that if Jesus is calling me to feed his sheep, then he has a way of providing everything that I need to feed his sheep. And after walking with him and living with him and seeing him and knowing his character and his nature, I've arrived at a place where when he says, feed my sheep, my first response isn't to tell him why I can't. Because he's proven himself over and over and over and over. And we, we talk about this a lot of times. And we use, you know, people use this to talk about finances. And that's, you know, obviously a big part of it. And it's, an, it's kind of an easy one to demonstrate. But, but what about everything else we receive from Him? Like, what about grace? What about the fact that it says that every good and perfect gift that comes down from above, is from the Father above in whom there is no shadow of turning? What about the fact that when He gives us grace, it's not just for us to consume ourselves, it's actually that we are to consume that grace, but also there's a portion of that grace that He gives us that we're to give and sow into other people. 
And if, if we're not careful, what will happen is we'll want grace for us and we'll want justice for everybody else. See, I'll enjoy His grace when it's me going by a cop at, at 15 over the speed limit. I'll pray for and be thankful for grace. But when you cut me off in traffic, I'll ask where's a cop when you need one. Because I want to live in the grace and I want to eat the fruit of the grace that's on my life and I want to enjoy that for me. But I don't understand that a portion of what's given to me is always so that I can give it to others. Because fruit always contains a seed within it so that it can reproduce after its own kind. Isn't it amazing that God is not creating anything ever again besides us? Think about this. Once He created orange trees, He created the ability for the orange tree to reproduce itself forever. He never created another orange tree Himself. That orange tree, the original orange tree, had the power to reproduce itself over and over and over again. He created oak trees. Within the first acorn that dropped, there was enough for a grove. Within the first grove that grew, there was enough for a city. Within the first city's worth that grew, there was enough for a country. And over and over and over again, it reproduced after its own kind. The only thing that is a new creation after the seventh day is humanity. If any man be in Christ, he is therefore now a new creation. Behold, everything has passed away and all things have become new. The only thing the Father is creating from the day seven of eternity until now is new people, new creations in Christ when people get born again. Why? Because the first Adam ate of the wrong fruit and the seed of the wrong fruit reproduced itself in humanity from that point forward because every fruit that you eat contains a seed meant to reproduce itself and from the day that humanity ate of the fruit of the garden in the garden of the knowledge of good and evil from that day forward every single person that was born had that seed born into them and it reproduced the fruit of their disobedience within people's lives until jesus comes jesus is called what The second Adam, what else is he? There's one coming. He will be the seed of a woman. He's called the seed of a woman, not the seed of man. See, we always talk about the seed being in man. But Jesus is actually the seed of a woman and the Holy Spirit. He's not born the same way that every other man was born. The seed of man is not placed into Him. So the fruit that was eaten by by the first Adam doesn't reproduce itself in the second Adam because He's fathered not by the seed of man, but by the Holy Spirit and the seed of a woman. So He comes into the earth and He hasn't eaten that fruit. He's not eaten of it yet. That's why the whole time he's on earth, the enemy is constantly trying to get him to eat of that fruit so that it can reproduce itself in him and so that every single person that is born into Christ would have that same fruit that was born into the first Adam, born into them when they're born into the second Adam. And that's why Jesus had to resist and win against the enemy every single battle he faced because he understood this is not just about me. This is about every single person who will be recreated, a new creation when they're born again into me. And I do not want that seed that was in the first Adam getting into me because then that seed will constantly reproduce itself into everyone who's born again. And there's no way that anyone can ever be a new creation without sin, holy, upright, blameless, without reproach, born into the righteousness of God in Christ. And so Jesus comes to earth and He walks sinless. And the enemy understands this. The enemy's goal wasn't to kill him. Ultimately, you know, that's what he wanted to do. But his goal was before he killed him to get him to bow his knee. Why? Because he wants him to eat of the tree. He's saying, listen, every single man that has been born up to this point has eaten of that seed. 
has had that seed reproduced inside itself and the original fruit that was eaten in the garden, that seed has constantly been reproducing. It's why sin has been constantly multiplying and constantly spreading and constantly invading. It's because the original sin, that seed that was eaten into humanity, had a seed in it that reproduced itself. Every seed reproduces after its own kind. It's a principle that God put in place in the garden. But He's born not the seed of man. He's perfect. He hasn't eaten of the tree. And so the entire time that he's on earth, the enemy is trying to get him to eat of the tree. And listen, we talked about this last week, but we have to understand this. The way that he tries to tempt Jesus is with things that Jesus was born for and with things that Jesus was created for and sent to earth for. But he was trying to get him to do it before it was time. So what does he do? Jesus has spent 40 days fasting in the wilderness. He has to go back to town to get food. He's reached the end of his fast. He's at the hungriest point he will be at in the fast. And what does Satan come to him and say? If you're God, command these stones to be turned to bread. What's he saying? Don't wait till you get to town to eat. Do it now. Get out a little bit early. He brings him to the top of a temple. He says, all this is mine and I'll give it to you. The earth is the reward of Jesus. All the kingdoms of earth. On one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess on heaven, in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus is Lord. It's all going to be His. What is He trying to get Jesus to do? He's trying to get Him to take it early by bending His knee to the enemy. It's something that Jesus knows is His. He knows that the earth and the fullness thereof belongs to the Lord. That it's His reward and that one day He will reign over everything that He could see. And the enemy comes to Him and says, listen, All you have to do is just bend your knee to me. I'll give it to you now. You don't have to wait. I'll give it to you now. Then he takes him to the top of the temple and he says, why don't you cast yourself down from here? For it's written, he will give his angels care over you, charge over you, and they will bear you up lest you dash your foot on a stone. What's he saying? There's going to be a day coming where you're going to have to be hung in front of the earth and you're going to have to trust your life into the hands of the Heavenly Father. Remember, into your hands I commit my life into your hands i commit my spirit father what is he saying he's saying god i'm up here and i'm taking you at your word that you will send your angels to bear me up that i won't dash my foot upon the stone what's the enemy saying to him listen you're going to have to do it someday why not just do it now there's a day coming where you're going to have to be put up on display up high, raised up high and you're going to have to publicly entrust yourself into the hands of the father who said he would bear you up Why not just do it now? Everything is always trying to get you to do something early. Everything. And so Jesus comes and He says, He understands who He is. He says, they're going to hang me on a tree. And we read that they did because it says, cursed is every man who is hung upon a tree. And it says that Jesus Christ was the first fruits of God. The firstborn of many brethren. And he told them, you have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood in order to have any part of me. What is he saying? He's saying, once again, there's going to be a choice and there's going to be fruit hanging upon a tree. And if you will eat of this fruit, the right fruit, it will reproduce inside of you because a seed reproduces after its own kind. The fruit of eating of me will be that the life that you were created for originally will actually become alive inside of you again. And not only for you, but every fruit contains seed that you can sow it and share it into other people's lives. It's Jesus, the first fruit, hanging upon a tree, once again saying, 
All you have to do is eat of me. If you eat of the fruit that's hanging from the right tree rather than the wrong tree, you can be born again. See, every man was born into the wrong decision to eat the wrong fruit of the wrong tree by the first Adam, but every man can be born again by making the right decision to eat the right fruit from the right Adam. Ah. Isn't it crazy how everything he does is just this perfectly balanced out plan and you can see it from the beginning of creation until now that nothing was wasted. The fact that they crucified him, they wanted to kill him in the most cruel way possible. They didn't understand that all they're doing is raising him up onto wood so that the first fruits of God could be raised up onto a tree and trees could be redeemed because the problem is never fruit. Jesus said if you make a tree good, the fruit will be good. So what was Jesus saying? The problem isn't the fruit the problem is the tree and the way that you fix the tree is by them eating of the fruit of the first Adam or the second Adam rather than eating of the fruit of the second Adam and if the tree is good then the fruit will be good (sighs) and if you just eat of me then I will reproduce righteousness inside of you and that brings us back to the end and I'm going to close up with this He says, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. What is the point? Why does he want to reproduce himself inside of us? Because he says, you will be be enriched in everything for all liberality. You will be enriched for everything so that you live a simple life not self-seeking, sincere life that's generous. Why? Because if I start to look at what I have rather than what I don't, I will start to look for opportunities to give what I have rather than see people as a problem because they don't have what I do. Think about it with grace. If I start to understand that the grace that was shown to me contains not only the fruit of grace that I eat and that I enjoy and that's good for me, the bread for eating, but I also understand that within that grace there's a seed for sowing. I start looking for opportunities where there's people that need grace sown into their lives. And rather than seeing everything that's wrong with people, I see the answer that I carry. Instead of saying, well, I can't because the, the town's so far away. See, when, I, when the, he says, you feed them. The first time he says it, Peter says, we can't. The town's too far away. We don't have what we need. Peter doesn't understand that all things pertaining to life and godliness have been given to us freely through the knowledge of him. But Peter would later write that verse in 2 Peter. All things pertaining to life and godliness have been given to you. The same Peter who didn't understand how he could feed people understood that now he had the ability to give everything that was necessary because everything that he needed was inside of him. So Peter and John go to pray. They made a blind man on the way. He held out his palms. He asked for alms. And this is what Peter said. This is the Peter that wrote that. He says, I don't have silver and gold, but what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And this is the interesting part about it. It wasn't just word. It was deed too. Because it says, and he reached down, and as he raised him up, his ankles were straightened. The world is waiting for people that not only understand they have what people need, but whose actions actually line up with their words. And who actually step out and do something that backs up what they're saying. Because he could have just said in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And if the man would have stood up and walked, then words alone would have been enough. But words alone weren't enough. That's why the word had to become flesh. If the word alone was enough, the law would have saved us. But it couldn't. So the word had to become flesh. And Peter reaches down and says, and as he raised him up, his ankles straightened. 
I, I promise you, God just wants a people that are surrendered and yielded to Him that when He says do something, don't start looking for reasons they can't. But start realizing that everything that they've been called to do, that He's always already given them everything that they need to do it if they would just yield what He's given yeah. to them to Him and let Him bless it and breathe on it. You don't need more seed. You just need to be faithful with the seed you have because he says that he will supply seed to the sower and enrich you so that in all liberality. Why? And it says, and it says this. It says, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. Why? Because I can't take glory for doing things that God has enabled me to do. That's why Peter said, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. You notice Jesus never said, in my name. Why? Because if Jesus is doing something, Jesus gets the credit. But when the disciples did something, they made sure that the people knew it was in His name because the glory doesn't belong to them. It belongs to Jesus. And they understand, if I will be faithful to open my hand and give what He's given me, He will be faithful to open His hand and give me everything I need for the next opportunity. And if I'll see what I have as seed for sowing rather than just bread for eating, if I'll differentiate between that, if everything that comes into my life becomes something I look for an opportunity to sow into other people. You know how happy people are that are full of grace and actually give grace? Why? Because you're not looking for what's wrong with people. You're looking for how you can make it right. It's just a change in perspective. You still see the problem. The difference is, is rather than looking at it and saying, what can I do? You look at it and say, here's what I can do. What I have, I give. Jesus is in a boat with the disciples. They wake him up. Don't you care that we're drowning? He rebukes them for their faith. You realize he rebukes them before he rebukes the storm? Why? He's more concerned with their faith than he is with the storm outside. He rebuked them first, then he rebuked the storm. Why? Because he understands there's going to be more storms coming. And if, I, if you guys don't get this, the next storm that comes, if I'm not in the boat, you're not going to understand what you've been given and you won't be able to survive. So he rebukes them, then he rebukes the storm. Why? Because he's kind and gracious and full of love and mercy. But he also wants them to learn a lesson in this so that the next time there's a storm, they're not running and saying we're going to die. They're running over to the edge of the bow and releasing what they have. And so Jesus stands up and he says, peace, be still. You notice he never prayed, God, give me peace. Why? Because he understood everything that I need has been given to me by the Father. And if there's a lack of peace, then that must mean I have peace because I'm here and I represent the kingdom of heaven. I'm an ambassador. And he just says, peace, be still. And the storm is, is calmed. Hmm. He didn't say, what can I do? I don't have my carpenter tools. I can't make the boat bigger. The problem wasn't the boat. He didn't say, what can I do? We can't make any sails right now. I don't have my sewing kit and any of that stuff. See, we make excuses sometimes and we look at a problem. We look at a storm. We say, what can I do? We don't understand. If God's highlighting a problem, it's not so that you can stand there and despair. It's so that you can release what he's given you into the situation and see it changed by the power of God. And that he's entrusting you with that. Here's the thing though. Every time he entrusts me with something and I look at it and I prophesy death or I decide that there's nothing that I can do, I take myself out of position for the next thing because I've taken my hand and I've closed it around the seed that he's given me. And then when I close my hand around the seed that he's given me, he closes his hand around the seed that he has to give next and he's waiting for me to open my hand again before he'll open his again. It just works that way. He supplies seed to the sower. Everyone gets to eat. Sowers get to sow. God, I just thank you for that. I thank you, God, that 
that I won't own anything you've given me, God, that, that I won't own the grace that you've given me, but I will see it as fruit from my life to enjoy, but seed within that fruit, that every fruit that I enjoy, every good and perfect gift from you, God, I look for the seed in it, and I'm faithful to sow it. Father, I ask that we would never look at a problem and despair or tell you we can't. God, even if we can't do everything, that we would see ourselves as people who are capable of doing something. God, that's why we're all members of one body. Because if one person could do it all, we would be one body by ourselves, but we're not. We're all made to be members of one body so that no matter what, if everybody does the thing that you've supplied them to do, Father God, every need will be met. Every hand will be filled. Every mouth will be fed. Every spirit will be touched, God. By all of us being faithful with what you've entrusted us with. God, I just pray that any poverty or orphan mentality that would come into our minds that would try to make us feel like people are being blessed that our expense would be broken, Father God. That we would never think that people are being blessed because we're being skipped. We would always see that people are being blessed because you're a good father and because you promised to bless your children. I thank you that we can rejoice with those who are blessed because we understand their blessing is a revelation of your heart. And if you would do it for one, you'll do it for many. I just ask that these things would be sealed in our heart, God, that this would not just be a message that we leave, God, and and forget that we wouldn't be like men who look in a mirror and see what kind of man we are, but when we walk away, forget what we look like, God, but that we would see this, that this is what we're being called to, and we would walk away with our lives changed, looking for opportunities to sow rather than for places to point out lack. Anybody can point out lack. Anybody can look at a barren field. Listen, you guys, anybody can look at a barren, empty field and see that it's barren and empty. A sower can look at a barren, empty field and see it as an opportunity to plant something that will produce a harvest. And within that harvest, there will be enough for another field to be planted 50 times over. Think about it this way. Everything that you're given, it's like a kernel of popcorn. You could take that kernel of popcorn and you could put it in the microwave or you could put it in a skillet and you could make a piece of popcorn and you could eat it and it wouldn't satisfy you for very long, but you could do that if you choose to. Or you could take that one kernel of corn and you could sow it into the ground. And when it brings forth a harvest the next time, you have a a whole bunch of ears of corn and now you have enough for you and you also have enough to give away and to sow. And every time you sow, you provide somebody else with that same seed and the same opportunity to reap bountifully. It's not just us. I think one of the greatest joys in heaven will be seeing all the places where the things that we did on earth that we couldn't see cause ripple effects and we'll get to see the extent of our obedience and the extent of our faithfulness and we'll sit there with God. But I also believe this. It says He'll wipe away every tear. I believe one of the things that will cause tears is that when we get to heaven, we'll look and we'll see that web of everything that we did and all that it touched, but I also believe that we'll see the places where we weren't faithful to sow and the opportunities that we missed and that God still blessed those people and that God still accomplished His will on the earth, but we missed the opportunity to be part of it and it'll bring us sorrow for a time and He'll wipe away those tears and we won't live with regret in heaven, but I do believe there will be a time where we can see everything that we said yes to and all the things that we didn't. That's just my own personal theology, but there's got to be something that's causing tears that need to be wiped away. I'm sure I've already done some things that are going to cause tears, but I want to live every single day with the mindset that I don't want to miss one opportunity. I don't want to say no to one thing. I don't want to eat a kernel of corn that's supposed to be sown into the ground if it's seed and not bread.
And I'm just thankful to be part of a group of people that I feel feel the same way. Love you guys. Bless you.